Well, we spent quite a bit of time in the book of Hebrews, and then last Sunday, pausing to share some thoughts from Psalm 13. This morning, we begin a new study in the book of Jude. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like for you to open them to the book of Jude. If it's been a while since you've been there, uh, you can do one or two things. You can open it up to the directory in the front of your Bible and find what page number it is, and that'll help you. Or you can just go to Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, and turn backwards a book and you'll find it. Of course, if you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen for you this morning to follow along with us. The book of Jude, small book, 25 verses, and we're going to read the entire 25 verses this morning, even though we'll not spend time, but in only two of them. But I at least want us to get a good idea of where we're going and what we're looking at. Of course, you don't know how hard it is for me not to, in these moments, to break out into song by singing, Hey Jude. (laughs) For ever since I decided that Jude was going to be our book and I began intently studying this week, I cannot get that refrain out of my head. But I'll not do that. Even though I really want to, really, really badly. (laughs) No, 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 no. All right, I'll stop. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once For all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains unto darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these dreamers, they defile the flesh, reject authority, Speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses dared not bring against him a reviling accusation but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally like brute beast in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them for they have gone in the way of Cain They've run greedily in the area of Balaam for profit, and they've perished in the rebellion of Korah. 
These are spots in your love feast, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom it is reserved the blackness of darkness forever." Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust, and they, they mouth great with swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit of God. But you, beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Well, Jude is arguably the most neglected book in the New Testament. One of those reasons might be its brevity. It's not as short as 2 John, 3 John, or even Philemon, but it's short nonetheless. 25 verses make up this tiny brief letter that seems to be tucked away in obscurity at the end of our Bibles. Another reason that Jude may be neglected is due to, as Tom Schreiner calls it, its strangeness. By that, we simply recognize that there are some unusual components to the book that are not typically seen in other New Testament letters. For example, as we read a moment ago, Jude will bring up a quote about an actual Old Testament person, Enoch. But that quote is not recorded in the Old Testament at all. Instead, it was passed down through additional Jewish history books. Now, the Holy Spirit inspired Jude's letter, so we know that these things are true, but it's just a small component of the letter that we don't normally see. Uh, Probably the biggest reason that Jude is often neglected is due to the solemn nature of its message. Because as we discovered here in our reading, it speaks of the severe and burning judgment that awaits intruders intruders of the church who attempt to corrupt the church of the living God. It's a strong warning, so strong that today's culture will find the message intolerant, unloving, and flat-out absurd. 
It is arguably the most neglected book. And even in looking back at my own sermons, I think maybe only one time have I ever, since preaching the gospel at the age of 15, ever preached the message out of the book of Jude. So I'm not just saying it is they who neglect. It's, it's me. It's we. We often neglect such an epistle. Now that brings me to what the theme of the book is, and I don't want to spend too much time here today other than to simply point it out to you. We find the theme stated clearly in verse number 3. Jude says, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. So Jude wrote this letter so that believers would contend for the faith that had been delivered to them. That they would contend for the faith that had been delivered to them. To to guard it, that's what that word contend implies. That we would guard the faith, that we would defend the faith, that we would stand for the faith, that we would fight for it if necessary. Of course, we're going to unpack all of that more as we go along, but that indeed is the heart of the book. Now, ultra-militant fundamentalists love Jude because they'll take a verse like Jude 3 and 4, contend for the faith, and they'll go off in fighting anything and everything that they think needs to be fought, which typically is anything and everything that moves. But they've totally misunderstood the tone and tenor of the theme. We'll get to that more next week. So, so before we get into the practical nature of Jude's greeting, which is the, the, the title of the sermon this morning, and it comes in verses 1 and 2, just a simple greeting from Jude. And we're going to look at it. I want us to first stop and look at how Jude introduces himself. Who was this guy? Who was Jude? Verse 1, look at it there. He says, Jude, this is who I am, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, this is how Jude introduces himself, but you have to do a little bit of digging to see some things here that may interest you. For some, or for for, for instance, uh, the the name actually used here in the original was not Jude. You'll only find this in the majority of English translations. What's in the original is the name Judas. Judas, a servant of Jesus Christ. Judas. Judas the brother of James. Now, it's important that we understand that distinction because this is Judas, the brother of James, not Judas Iscariot, which is why from my research that most translations use this abbreviated name Jude so as to make absolutely sure that he is never confused with the infamous Judas Iscariot. So that's why we have Jude here. It's his nickname. It's abbreviated. It's short for Judas, who is the brother of James. Now, there are several men in the New Testament with the name Jude or Judas. But Jude identifies himself specifically, again here, verse 1, look at it there, as the brother of James, the brother of James. This is important because it gives us a little glimpse into his home and family life. Who was James? Well, James was the half-brother of Jesus Which means that if Jude is the brother of James, then Jude also was the half-brother of Jesus. So here we have Jude, who's really Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas the brother of James. Judas who also happens to be the brother of Jesus. 
And we see proof of that throughout the New Testament in various gospel accounts. Let me just give you one in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3 when the people said of Jesus, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Now if you'll remember, none of Jesus' brothers believed that he was the Messiah during Jesus' earthly ministry. In fact, they thought he was crazy. One time he was teaching. That's exactly what they said. They said, go get Jesus. He's speaking out of his mind. What are these things that he is saying? It wasn't until the after the resurrection that their eyes were opened to faith and they saw him no longer as their brother, but as their Lord and Savior. So what we have here is a letter from a man who grew up in the same home as Jesus. What an experience that would be. I don't know if they had bump beds, but perhaps they had bump beds together. They ate at the same table. They played in the same backyard. They grew up together, just like all of us as brothers and sisters do in our own home. That's who Jude is. Jude is the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, the brother of James. And he comes to faith in Christ after the resurrection. Now, this is where I think we get into, get a little glimpse into Jude's character. Because I want you to think about that here in verse 1. He doesn't identify himself as the blood relative of Jesus. I don't know about you, but if I'm the half-brother of Jesus and I'm walking into a room, everybody's going to know, hey, that's my brother. I'm going to have a big shirt on or something. My Facebook profile is going to say, Jesus is my brother, all right? He's my brother. But Jude doesn't do that. He identifies himself, look at it here, as the servant of Jesus, brother of James. The servant of Jesus, brother of James. In other words, he doesn't begin this letter with a boastful pedigree that suggests they should all listen to him on the basis of who his brother was. I'm writing this letter to you, and you better listen to me, because I'm the brother of Jesus. I grew up in his home. I mean, we're like this. I know him better than any of you know him, so you better listen to what I'm saying. No, he doesn't do that at all. He's not throwing around privilege like we often like to do. He's humble, and in humility, he sees himself, even though he is the half-brother of Jesus, he sees himself like any other Christian. Look at it again. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. That's how he sees himself. A servant of Jesus Christ who is submitted to his lordship. I'm not a half-brother who has privilege you don't have. I'm a servant who is submitted to his lordship just like anyone else. David Helm said this, the people closest to Jesus are happy to call themselves servants. The people closest to Jesus are happy to call themselves servants. Servants. It was an honor for Jude to acknowledge himself as the servant of Jesus. And by the way, 
Servant here is not just a title we carry. It is a responsibility we bear. It's not just something we say, oh yeah, I want to be like that. I'm a servant of Jesus. I'm a servant of Jesus. I'm a servant of Jesus. No, it comes with responsibility. To be a servant of Jesus means we serve Jesus. We serve him. He is our king. He is our sovereign Lord, he has all authority in our lives. It is he who dictates where we go and what we do and how we spend the resource of this life that he has given us. Why? Because we're not just carrying around a title. I am a servant of Jesus. No, we're telling you what we do. We serve Jesus. We serve our Lord. And that is exactly how Jude wants to be known as. Humbly, humbly. Servant of Jesus, brother of James. Servant of Jesus, brother of James. Now, if you come from a family like I do with Jared and Jesslyn, I just say, servant of Jesus. <laughs> now, just in the manner by which he identifies himself, Jude is also showing us what Christian maturity looks like. Christian maturity says, I'm just a humble servant under the authority of Jesus Christ. I'm a humble servant under the authority of Jesus Christ. Now verse 1 and 2 does more than simply share with us Jude's audience and Jude's greeting. It certainly does these things. These opening words remind us as born again believers of who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ. And that's the simplicity of the outline this morning. I want you to know who you are in Christ, if indeed you are a born-again believer. I want you to know who you are in Christ. I want you to know what you have in Christ. That's what Jude is saying here in these opening lines. I want you to know who you are, and I want you to know what you have. So let's look at these two respectively. Number one, know who you are in Christ. Know who you are in Christ. Verse one, here's the audience. He is writing to those who are called, called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. So without question, Jude's audience was a group of Christians. These are those who are called, sanctified, preserved in Jesus. But the beauty of this verse is that he takes time to remind these Christians of who they are, of who they are in Christ. And brothers and sisters as Christians, this is our identity as well. It's not just the identity of those to whom Jude is writing. It is the identity of every one of us who claims Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's an identity of grace, an identity that God wants you to be confident in. I think we all agree that we live in a culture where there is a great identity crisis in a lot of people's minds. But God doesn't want you to have an identity crisis. He doesn't want you to be confused about who you are. And so throughout the Bible, in in addition to just this one epistle, uh, throughout the whole Bible we are told who we are in Christ. He gives us a little glimpse of that in verse 1. Let's look at these descriptions. Number one, he says, "Who who am I? Who am I in Christ? I am called. That's the first thing he says. We are called. We are called. He's writing to those who are called. 
That is, we who belong to God belong to Him because He has called us to His grace. The emphasis is on God doing the calling. Reminding us that God, God is the initiator of this relationship that we have with Him. He, he is the elector. He is the chooser. He is the, he is the caller. He's the one who wanted to have a relationship with me. He's the one who came to me. He's the one who is responsible for me even knowing Him. That's how much He loves me. That's how much His grace is marvelous and magnificent in my life because it is God who initiated this whole thing. He called me. I didn't call Him. No, He called me. He called me. This is word called. It speaks, it speaks more than just a mere invitation, all right? In fact, the word isn't speaking at all of a mere invitation. This is the sovereign act of God whereby he opens the heart to faith in order that we might freely receive his grace. That's what it means to be called. The sovereign act of God, whereby he opens the heart to faith in order that we may freely receive his grace. And it is a definite call. By that we mean it is a call that guarantees a fruitful response. A fruitful response. Consider what Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 37. All that the Father gives me or all that the Father calls will come to me. It's a guarantee that those whom God opens the heart of faith will respond to the call. All that the Father calls, they will come to me. John 6, 44. And no man comes to me unless the Father calls him. Unless the Father draws him. John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and they what? They follow me, and I give them eternal life. Jesus is saying, I have called them, they follow me, they possess eternal life. And that is how we come to faith in Christ. That is how you have possessed the salvation that you have today. At some point in your life, God called you, and you came to Christ, and he gave you eternal life through faith in his Son. Paul continues in this theological understanding in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30, it says, Moreover, whom he, God, predestined, he also called. Called. Again, we're going back to this very important word, the sovereign act of God, whereby he opens the hearts of faith to him in order that we receive his grace. He has predestined this. He has called us, those whom predestined. He's called to those whom called. He justified and to those whom he justified, these he glorified. Perhaps none is more clear than Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us. He chose us. Think about that. God chose you. He wants you. You don't know how much God loves you. He loves you that he, he wants you. He wants you. He chose you. He called you. He says he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. You want to talk about something that will give you a headache when you go home this afternoon. Think about the fact that before the foundation of the world, God already made a decision that he wanted you. 
Before he created anything, he had already made up his mind. I want you. I want you. Having predestined us to the adoption by Jesus Christ, how did he do this? According to the good pleasure of his will. Well, Pastor, what about my will? Well, this is part of the reason why Paul called the intricacies of the gospel a great mystery. In that God's call to his elect is in perfect harmony with man's free will to respond to the gospel. Again, talk about something to give you a headache. Paul called it a a mystery, a mystery that, that God elects, that God chooses, while at the same time it is in perfect harmony with man's freedom to respond to the gospel. There's a unique tension here, a unique tension here that is hard for our limited minds to fully grasp. So it makes me feel so much better that even Paul himself called it a mystery. If Paul called it a mystery, who are we to think we can figure it out in this lifetime? Let me give you something to help you, though. Timothy George, in his book, Amazing Grace, God's Pursuit and Our Response, he said this, God created human beings with free moral agency, and he does not violate this even in the supernatural work of his sovereign regeneration. Christ does not rudely bludgeon his way into the human heart. He does not abrogate our creaturely freedom. No, he beckons and woos. He pleads and pursues. He waits And he wins. That is the tension understood. This is what it means to be called that even when you were in rebellion against God, going your own way, having your own mind, that he was still beckoning. He was still wooing. Thank God he was still waiting. And eventually he won the battle in your life. He won the battle. Why? Because he called you. And everyone he calls will come to him sooner or later. Sooner or later. I don't want to confuse you this morning. So let me speak clearly here. Anybody who wants to be saved can be saved. And no one is saved who doesn't want to be saved. Anybody who wants to be saved can be saved. And no one is saved who doesn't want to be saved. All of this works in the mystery of God's sovereign call to salvation. Then why, pastor, does God emphasize in the scripture the elective purposes of his salvation in our lives? You cannot ignore that, by the way. Some of you are very uncomfortable with this. It's because we try to understand a perfect God in our imperfect minds. And God said in the book of Isaiah, you'll never be able to understand me. My ways are higher than your ways. So, so this, this, this stuff bothers us. But it's in the Bible. It's very clear. Why does God emphasize the elective purposes of his salvation? Because even if we can't wrap our heads around how it all works, he wants us to have no question about this fact. That God's salvation is 100% a divine gift of grace and not one ounce, one ounce of human merit. That's the point. Even when we can't make sense of it, 
Even if you want to meet me in the parking lot and have a discussion this afternoon about when does it happen? Does regeneration happen before faith or does regeneration happen after faith? And all the nuances of all these things of God's election, God's calling, and God's choosing. Listen, it's in the Bible, and it's in the Bible for this reason. We don't get saved because we're good enough, because we want it bad enough. We get saved because God did it all. He did it all. It's 100% a gift of God's grace, not one ounce, not one ounce of human merit. Not one. So by emphasizing God's calling here, Jude is reminding us that our identity, who we are, we need to know who we are. Our identity is wrapped up in the undeserved, unmerited, amazing grace of God. Who am I? I am called by God. He wanted me. He called me. Secondly, he says, I am sanctified, where we are sanctified. We are called. Who are we? We need to know who we are. We are called. We are sanctified. Sanctified. Sanctified by God the Father is the phrase here used in the New King James. I don't want to spend much time on this other than to remind us about the fullness of God's love in our salvation. That is, God did not save us from sin's penalty and then leave us to ourselves to figure the rest out. I'm thankful he didn't do that. I have a bad habit of doing that with my children. If I want them to wash the dishes, I show them how to wash one, and then you figure out the rest. You'll get it. You'll get it. And then the dishwasher's broke, and there's food still and other stuff, and I I should have taken it. Listen, God's not that way either. God didn't just save us and then leave us alone to figure it out for ourselves. No, his love has completely taken over our lives. And that's what sanctification means. Remember, justification is God declaring me righteous on the account of Jesus Christ. It's as if I stood in the courtroom condemned to die and Jesus stood up and said, I will take his place. I will bear his punishment and his penalty. And God the Father, God the Judge, declared me righteous because Jesus took my place. That's justification. Sanctification is God making me who he has declared me to be. So justification is God declaring me righteous before God. Sanctification is when God's love invades my life and begins changing things, even the things that I didn't want changed. He invades my life. His love surrounds me. And it begins cleaning house, if you will, changing things sanctifying me, making me to be who he has declared me to be, and that is righteous before God. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that God has not left me to myself, that he has put his seal of love on my heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 says, Now he who established us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Look, God's love in our hearts is sanctifying us. It is changing us. It's maturing us. It's strengthening us. It is setting us apart in this world. That's who we are. We are called by God. We are sanctified by the Father. His love is strengthening us and making us who he wants us to be. Listen, as Christians, our identity in Christ is not one of sinless perfection. It's one of hopeful imperfection. 
Every day of my life, I fail him. Imperfection is who I am. But with hope that God is making me to be who he saved me to be. Formed into the image of Jesus Christ. And I got a long way to go. And so do you. In fact, it won't be finished until we see him face to face. So we don't strut around in the world saying, look at me, I am a perfect child of God. No, you're not. The day you begin to think that, you may ought to recategorize whether or not you're a child of God. No, 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 no. Who am I? I am called by God. And I am an imperfect, struggling Christian whom God is still working on every day of his life. That's who I am. I am being sanctified. All right, thirdly, he says, we are kept. We are preserved. Who am I? You need to know who you are. I am called. I am sanctified. I am kept. I am kept. That's the last phrase of verse 1, preserved in Jesus Christ. Again, the word here is kept is the simpler translation. In fact, it's a word that's repeated on several occasions in Jude, one of his favorite words. When we talk about Bible study, sometimes we'll use language like this. We need to find the melodic line of the book. Find the melodic line of the book. Well, what's something that the writer is saying throughout the letter? How do we do that? Well, it's, it's good. I find it helpful for me. I'll read the, the first half of the book a little bit, see what's being said in the first few verses. We see this word kept. I'll go to the end of the book, and I'll see what's at the end of the book. We'll see the word kept used over and over again. Then when we read in the middle of the book, we'll see the word kept, kept, kept used on several different occasions. So throughout the book, there is this melodic line. That is the tone by which God wants us to understand what he is saying. It's why so many people get the book of Jude in tone wrong. Because there's encouragement here. It is a reminder that no matter what invades the church, we will be kept by God. No matter what attacks us, we will be preserved in Jesus Christ. It's, it's the melody of the book. Consider it again at the end, verse 24, if you have your Bible still open. Verse 24, it says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Keep you from stumbling. So, so in verse number 1, he says we are kept in Jesus Christ. In verse 24, he says we are kept in Jesus Christ. We see the positive nature of God's keeping. He keeps us secure. He preserves those who are truly his, John 10, 28, they shall never perish, neither shall anyone pluck them, snatch them, grab them out of my hand. Well, how is that possible, Pastor? That's possible because we are called by God. You see, the front end of our salvation is what helps us to understand the back end of our salvation. If we were the ones responsible for our salvation, then we would be the ones responsible for our security, for our keeping, for our preserving. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people living not the victorious Christian life. They're living a defeated Christian life because they think they're responsible for being saved. Or at the very least, they think they're responsible for staying saved. So we got to get the whole picture right. 
I'm not responsible for my salvation. God has called me. And when God is wholly responsible for it, it means he is wholly responsible for keeping me as well. No man can take me out of the hand of God because I belong to him. He has called me. He has saved me. I am kept in Jesus Christ. He's called you. He's sanctified you. He's kept you. Well, what if I mess up big time? Big time. All right? If you mess up big time, here's what I want you to know. They will never perish. Neither will anyone pluck them out of my hand. Even if I mess up big time, even if you mess up big time, There's no caveat here. Those who are true children of God are kept by God forever. Thanks be to God for the grace of his keeping power. Those who truly belong to him. And I emphasize truly belong to him. None of this repeat after me and then go do whatever you want to do the rest of your life with no acknowledgement as Jesus is Lord. That's not salvation. That's works. That's religion. Salvation is the acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord. And when you have acknowledged Jesus as Lord of your life and Savior of your life, you are held firmly in the hand of God, and nothing will ever be able to remove you. Thanks be to God. That's who I am. I am called. I'm sanctified. I'm kept. Now, that doesn't mean that we're to be passive and and apathetic, willfully yielding ourselves to sin because we are kept, you know. In fact, we see in verse 21 of Jude, and we'll get to it eventually. I know some of you are encouraged by the fact that we just spent nearly two years in a book that had 13 chapters, and now we're only going to a book that has one chapter. I know that encourages you, and we won't be here forever. But when we eventually get to verse 21, Jude will tell us to keep yourselves in the love of God. That's fascinating, isn't it? Because he says, you're kept in Jesus at the beginning. You're kept in Jesus at the end. And now all of a sudden, boom, keep yourself in the love of God. I will save that for another time. But the intent here is that the truth that God will keep our lives secure in him should motivate us to keep ourselves in the will of God. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. God forbid. Brothers and sisters, this is our identity. And Jude wants us, and I want you, to know who you are. To know who you are. It's vital to you experiencing joy and victory in this life. You are called. You are sanctified. You are kept. Thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift. All right, here's the second one. Not only does he want you to know who you are in Christ, Jude, by way of greeting, helps us to know what we have in Christ. So know who you are in Christ. Secondly, know what you have in Christ. And this brings us to verse 2, and it's a prayer. In fact, the prayer in verse 2 is three of the abundant blessings that God gives to every person who has trusted Jesus Christ for salvation. In other words, if you know who you are, you need to know what you have what you have in Christ. And here's what he says. He says you have mercy. Look at it there in verse 2. You have mercy, peace, and love. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. All right, so first of all, we have mercy. Mercy. 
Mercy is the outpouring of God's unlimited mercy, okay? Jeremiah tells us that his mercy is new every morning. Hebrews tells us that we can go boldly to the throne of God. Boldly to the throne of God, and we can find mercy when we need help. Mercy, church, is the foundation, is the foundation of our relationship with God. What we have in Christ is continual forgiveness, continual mercy, and we rejoice in that because we need that. We need that every day of our lives. Not only mercy, we have peace. We have peace. You know, salvation is like one of those gifts you receive that's one big box. I don't know if you've ever done this. My brother bought my dad for Christmas one year this huge box. I think he ordered it online this way. You can buy it from Amazon. This is one big box that had like 20 boxes on the inside. All right? So when he opened up the big one, it went to the second one, and then the third one, and 20 boxes later, it comes to this real small one. And you know, you know what was in it when he opened it up? Nothing. It was absolutely nothing. All right? So, so, so God's gift is almost like these boxes, except there's something in every box, okay? There's something in every box. And, and peace is just one of those, those little boxes inside this big box. L- look at it like this. God's mercy is the gift that we need to be forgiven, to be forgiven. God's peace is the gift that we need to know we are forgiven, all right? God's mercy is the gift that we are given To be forgiven. God's peace is the gift that we are given to know we are forgiven. Do you know that this morning? Do you have that peace in your heart? Peace? That you are right with God, that your sins have been forgiven, that you are a child of God? Well, if you're in Christ, you have that. Because that's what we have in Christ. We have mercy. We have Peace, and then finally we have love. We have love. Throughout this letter, Jude reminds Christians that we are loved by God. Throughout the letter. And it's an important reminder, isn't it? We need to be reminded that we are loved. I just, I just, I just love it when my wife will just for no reason at all just come and say, I love you. And, and here's my response. What do you want? <laughs> what did I do wrong? Nothing. I just wanted you to know that I love you. Yeah, Keegan, believe it or not, of all of our kids, is the most tender-hearted one. He does this all the time. All the time. He'll find me. He'll wrap his arms around me, kiss me on the cheek. He kisses weird. It just it makes me uncomfortable sometimes. <laughs> it's like this. He's not a quick like, it's not, it's not like that. It's like, <laughs> we're going to work on that one. He'll give me that kiss on the cheek and say, I love you, Dad. I love you too, buddy. It's just good to be reminded of that, isn't it? That's, that's, what, that's what Jude's doing. He's just reminding us that God loves us, that he's never stopped loving us, and that he never will stop loving us. Sometimes God even sends little reminders to us just to say to us again, I love you. Kathleen and I have experienced that overwhelmingly this week. I mean, really... 
for the past year we've experienced that. When I, when I had my breakdown last year, I'm sitting on the back porch of my house, and all of a sudden it was your idea to send me a bunch of cards, and we read through like nearly 300 cards sitting on our back patio crying. I don't know what half of them said. You understand that, don't you? When, when you're in that season of life, you just, I don't, but here's, here, here's what all of them said to me. I love you. I love you. That, that was God using you to remind me that God's, God loves me. God loves me. I remember I took all those Trump stimulus checks. Man, where'd those go? I'm a saver by nature. I like to save. If I find a quarter on the floor, I'm going to put it in my piggy bank. All right? So everything he gave me during that season, I put it in the bank. I put it in the bank. What were you saving it for? I don't know. A boat. A Disney cruise. No, our car is probably fixing to die. That's exactly what I was saving it for. And then God says, no, you're not going to get a car. I'm going to give you a baby. Do you know where every bit of that stimulus money went? To an attorney who makes too much money. All gone. All of it. Do you know since then God has given every dime of it back? Every dime of it back. I I took that as God saying, I love you. I love you. Our baby, Jaden, who's adopted, if you don't know our story, he's been on Medicare since the day he arrived in this world in that front yard in Thomasville, North Carolina, born breached. Everybody who looked at him thinks he's a miracle. They put him on Medicaid due to the nature of his birth. We're looking at this cranium bill, $3,000. That's okay. Medicaid will take care of it. Formula, Medicaid will take care of it. You ever heard of WIC? I'm going to put you on WIC. We're going to take care of it. All those little things. It may not be a big deal to you. But for a family who wasn't prepared, it was God's way of saying, I love you. I love you. Just this week, just this week, we got another blessing about a scholarship for one of our kids to go to Christian school. It was God's way of saying, I love you. I love you. God does that. And we need to be reminded of it over and over again. We have his word. We have his spirit. We have his provisions. And we have his church so that we may constantly be aware of what we have in Christ. God's love. Mercy, peace, and love. And notice this, and we are going to pray. Jude prays that these gifts from Jesus will do what? Will be multiplied in our lives. That's an important request, isn't it? In other words, Jude is saying, and I love this, may you have a whole lot of mercy. May you have a whole lot of peace. And may you have a whole lot of love. So let's bring it back to the beginning. Jude's not prancing in. I'm Jude. Hey, Jude, I'm Jude, the brother of Jesus, and I got something I want to say. No, he says, hey, I'm Jude, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am called, 
I am sanctified. I am kept in Jesus. I have mercy. I have peace. I have love. And when you think about that, could there be anything more wonderful than simply being a servant of Jesus? I want you to leave this morning knowing who you are. I want you to leave this morning knowing what you have. And friends, if you do not have mercy, peace, and love, it's time for you to respond to the call of God in your heart today. You are not here by accident. You are here because there's a God in heaven who is wooing you to him. Now, he'll wait as long as he needs to wait. But there is no regrets. There is no regrets in coming to him now and receiving what we all have, mercy, peace, and love. Let's stand together for prayer.